If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to the letter of James? For those of you who are with us as, as guests today, we have been preaching our way through this short letter, and today we find ourselves for a third time in James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses, but it's really just verses 11 and 12 I want to talk about for a few minutes. Um, the text is also printed there on page 7 in your bulletin. Starts out with something I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't it this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work with the word now, Lord, to feed us and to change us in Jesus' good name. Amen. I think that if you were to ask most people, they would say they want to live in a world where people are good to each other. By which I mean people would, I think people would say they would like to live in a world where basically people treat each other with honor, with justice, with faithfulness, with kindness, maybe even with mercy, with generosity. You know, I'm a little less sure of this than I used to be, I confess, <laughs> but I think most people would say that is the world they want to live in, you know, as opposed to a world where everyone just kind of hates each other and manipulates each other and abuses and curses each other all the time. Certainly more locally, I'm sure many of us would say, you know, that's the kind of country I'd like to live in where people are good to each other, or maybe you're in a company, a, you know, an organization, and you'd like to, you know, on the job to have people be just good to each other, or maybe you're in a family and you just want so much for the relationships to be good, and or a church or whatever, and I think most people would say that that is what they want, and we are most definitely not there. Our world is not a place where people are certainly always good to each other, even necessarily often. In some contexts, it's really bad. I mean, it's tragically awful how people treat each other. But what I want to ask you guys today is what stands in the way of a world where people are good to each other? And if you start thinking about the answer in your head to that question, you are immediately going to start thinking, as I do, that certain people, this is what would need to happen for us to live in a world where people are good to each other. We need to have certain people start doing or stop doing certain things. You know, if people would just stop thinking like that, would start speaking and acting in that way, then we could make some progress toward a world where people are good to each other. You know, we feel this in our families I mean, you know, ask anybody in my family. We've got a long list of things where we'd say, you know, so-and-so would start doing that or stop doing that. We'd have a better family life. You feel it in your friendships. You feel it at work. You feel it in school. 
You certainly feel it on social media. How often in the week do you have this kind of knee-jerk reaction like, how can they X? Or why don't they Y? And if you think about that going on in your head and in my head, you're going to realize that at the very heart of social life is judgment. At the very heart of social life is judgment. If you have any thoughts whatsoever on, about social behavior, how people ought to treat each other, you are judging. That is inherently a judgment. Judgment in the sense that we distinguish, you know, one thing from another. That is not like that. The old word discernment, the, the original idea of discerning was sifting, kind of separating things out. That is not like that. That is not the same as that. And then we weigh certain things and we find them wanting, like that shouldn't be or that really ought to be and it's a problem that it's not. That's judgment. Now, judgment is often very unconscious. You know, I, I don't necessarily always walk around thinking, wow, I'm just, you know, having all these judgments, but I'm obviously full of judgment. So are you. And judgments can be very narcissistic. I don't usually consciously think this, but the truth is there are people in my life that I honestly judge. They don't matter like I do. Let me look at verse 2. You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you go to war, right? I mean, that's what's going on. When somebody, you know, they want something from somebody, they don't give you what you want, and you're ready to attack them, even if it's just with kind of an angry outburst, the reality is in your heart and mind, you've judged. They don't matter like you do. You're kind of up on this high ground, and they're on the low ground, and you're just kind of training your guns on them. That's fairly self-centered. Or judgment can be very public-spirited. You know, that over there, that is damaging people. That needs to be stopped, even if by, by force, if necessary. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of thing in the, you know, the COVID times. Very public-spirited judgments. That either needs to start or that needs to stop. That's judgment. And there's always an ideal in our heads by which we judge things, by which we measure things. You know, these, these, these ideals we have, they can be fairly sophomoric. You know, I think about John Lennon's Imagine... Talk about a judgy song. Basically, you know, you can boil that entire song down to, imagine if everyone in the whole world thought like John Lennon. What a stupid world. People don't think like John Lennon. That's a judgment. We all do this. Now, judgment is necessary. You cannot get away from this. If the words like genocide or oppression or abuse or fraud or many other words are going to have any meaning whatsoever, judgment is necessary. As an aside, I get a little bit tired of hearing people say, didn't Jesus say, judge not, mic drop? And you just want to say, you know, have you read anything else in the Bible? Because the Bible's full of judgment. Jesus judged, the apostles judged, every Christian in the Bible judged, you judge, you're supposed to judge. That, that judge not was not some absolute prohibition of all moral discernment. It was not an absolute prohibition on addressing evils and injustices. I mean, for if we're crying out loud, look at verse 4. You know, J- James says, you're a, you're a, you are adulterous people. I mean, that's a judgment, right? That's a pretty strong judgment. So that can't be what Jesus meant, that we just stop addressing evil at all. But, you know, he says here, don't speak evil against each other, brothers. The one who speaks and judges has got a problem. And Jesus' words, judge not, they flag how judgment goes bad. It really can go bad. I mean, it can go bad in all kinds of ways. You might have a wrong ideal. You might be holding people up to a standard that's not the right standard. That's a problem. Or you might have a very good ideal, and you're judging people for not, you know, meeting that ideal, not meeting that standard, but you're going after them in a very, very non-ideal way, (laughs) going after that ideal, as we'll see in a moment. Now, take judgment, some of these problems with judgment, let's move those into the religious context, because you and I, you know, we're Jesus people, which means you believe in God, you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
you believe in the world is supposed to be a certain way, you know, we religious people, we think we have God's ideal. That'll ramp up your judgment. You ever met people who are religiously contentious? They're so right, they're impossible to live with. Because they don't just have, like, some idea they got from some philosopher somewhere. They literally are convinced we have God's ideal. And we're looking down on everybody in the world from that lofty vantage point. So, you know, religious, religious world, it's a place where judgment can be very strong and it can get very, very contentious. Whether religious or not, you cannot live without judgment. But what judgment needs, James is showing us here, what judgment really needs to bring blessing as opposed to ruin in our social lives, he tells us here, is a mighty encounter with God. And I just want to very briefly touch on two things today. I want to show you in verse 11, really let James show us, how judgment turns sinful. And I want to show you in verse 12 how judgment plays sovereign. They're both big problems. Now, it's interesting he says, don't speak evil against one another, what? Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. That sets the relational context in which judgment is taking place. It's within a brotherhood, a sisterhood, family relations. And it reminds us, God created this world to be a theater of loving relationships. That's what the world was supposed to be. It was to be a theater of love from God to his creatures, between creatures, between humans even in the non-human creation. There's a whole world of love, and that theater of loving relationships, that's really what God is restoring through Jesus, right? I mean, you think about when the the Bible uses words like reconciliation, talks about God's plan to unite all things in Christ, talks about God's love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I mean, these are words that are describing what God is doing through Jesus as mending, as putting relationships back together, and you know, obviously, part of that restoring that God is doing means evils have to be opposed. Like, you've got to fight against some things. There are evils and follies that are fracturing relationships. You cannot sit idly by and watch that happen and be like, oh, you know, it's just kind of people do their thing. If you're going to be part of God's mending work, part of God's restoring work, you're going to have to find a way to, at least in your own heart and mind, if not actively, you need to oppose evils that are breaking relationships. But James is reminding us here when he says you need to be careful as you... Don't speak evil against each other. He's reminding us that you can oppose evils and follies in a way that leaves the relationships more broken than they were before. I I just want to let that sort of sink in for a moment. It is possible to sin in a righteous cause. It is possible to violate God's law of love in opposing violations of his law of love. Are you tracking with me? This making sense? You, you can actually do injustice in fighting injustice. So here you're seeing things being broken, and the way you engage that, when it's fine that your heart wants to engage, but the way you do it can actually break things more. It is possible to overcome, try to overcome evil with evil. So it's not enough, you know, as we look out and see injustices in the world. We should see them, but it's not enough simply to identify injustice in the world and see where things are falling short of where they ought to be. That is really important. Things must be a certain way, and there's nothing wrong with seeing that. But you need to sort of have a check about your speaking evil and your judging. My brother-in-law once said something that was very wise, and I've been thinking about it ever since. He said, God has been teaching me the difference between the ideal and the holy. 
I've been thinking about that ever since. You can actually trample on holiness in pursuit of a biblical ideal. As James puts it here, speaking evil of a brother, now to be clear, this isn't just speaking evil falsely. I mean, if you, if you do that, shame on you. If you, tell, if you speak evil about people and it's not true, shame on you. And by the way, this really, I'm amazed at how people, all of us, it is so easy not to make sure that what you are saying about somebody is true. I mean, we just, stuff just gets repeated and, and said. You know, if, if you're not checking to make sure that what you're saying about someone is true, that's a problem, obviously. Or if you're speaking evil in the sense that you're speaking maliciously, like you just have kind of spleen, you know, in your soul against someone, and you're just angry with them, and they frustrate the blank out of you, and you're just like spewing about them. You know, that's, that's obviously out of place among Jesus' people, but, and it does happen, but that kind of evil speaking is one thing. But speaking evil of a brother, even where the brother is clearly in the wrong, I mean, really obviously wrong, maybe wronged you personally, still speaking evil of them can be done in a way, you know, identifying that evil and speaking against it, that can still be done in a way that violates God's holy standards. We all, you know, speaking to you as Christians now, we all really do live a selective righteousness. I think we have to be honest about that. We are, we are selective, we're selective in our righteousness. I have this thing inside of me that says, because I'm speaking what's true, and what's true is really, really bad. I mean, I'm seeing something, and this ought not to be. Or I'm seeing something, and it's clear that needs to happen as a moral matter. And I am just, my heart is on fire with that. And I'm speaking what's true, and what I'm, what I'm seeing is really bad. There is this thing inside of me that as I go, kind of go after that with my words and, and in my heart, I can start to indulge just harshness. Just a lack of patience, a lack of grace, a lack of compassion. I can start indulging exaggeration. You know, not outright lies, but just, you know, blowing the thing up so it's a bit, you know, straw manning, they call it. You know, just making it a little bit easier to throw a punch at it. And angry zingers, because I'm right, you know. And it's easy to get this sort of prophetic self-inflation of, you know, speaking like an oracle about the evil things and the people who are responsible and, and this sort of thing. And you just realize in your heart, you know, you're, you're kind of trampling on holiness. You yourself are now entering into a mode where you're coming at a brother or a sister who, let's say, has violated God's law. I mean, they are living in a way, they're acting in a way that is just not right. But you're not coming now as one who is under the law. You're coming as one who is somehow almost over it. You're speaking evil of a brother, judging your brother in a way where you're actually speaking evil against the law and judging the law. You're holding yourself above God's law even as you're trying to address something that is violating God's law. I find myself shockingly willing to sin in confronting sin, which really is defying the very standard that I'm defending. I won't take more than seconds with this, but I was just, it'd be interesting to have a long conversation about the implications of this selective righteousness that James is going after here. It'd be interesting to think about the implications of that in a society that has been fractured into a bunch of tribes that believe that what is necessary now is to win at all costs. And when you're in a society that's fractured into tribes who believe you must win at all costs, and you're a Christian in one of those tribes, what's going to be tempting is for you to think that because you're in the tribe that's right, you should win at all costs. 
And I know a lot of Christians that have really bought into that in the last five or six years. The idea that we don't need to hold ourselves to God's standards anymore because we're with the right tribe and we need to win at all costs. That is a problem. It's very tempting to play by the world's rules when it feels like the stakes are extremely high. But James goes deeper in verse 12. You be careful as you speak against a brother. You judge a brother because you can get very, very quickly into territory. You are now over the law of God yourself. You are speaking evil of God's law and judging the law like you're above it. But James even goes deeper in verse 12 because the real issue is not ultimately our posture towards God's law. It's our posture toward the God behind the law. And while James, you know, in verse 12, his plow cuts really deeply here. It is just such a radically freeing furrow that he cuts. We've looked at how judgment turns sinful, but notice in verse 12 how judgment plays sovereign. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Human judgment is necessary, but it is also dangerous because there's something godlike about judgment. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God hates evil, and you made in his image, your heart reflexively reacts against evil too. God made you that way, and as far as it goes, that is imaging God. But as you judge, as you look out at things and exercise your moral discernment, there's something kind of godlike about that, and we dare not forget in our judgments who is the imperfect shadow and who is the perfect reality. And James reminds us there's just one lawgiver and there's one judge. To start with, there is only one lawgiver. The, we've said this many times. The only possible ultimate standard of moral goodness is God himself. If there is no God, the cosmos does not care. And all you've got is human beings running around making moral judgments. And for every moral judgment anybody makes, if there's no God, the giant, looming, unavoidable, and eradicable question is, who says? I think this. I oppose that. I object to this. That's how it ought to be. Who says? And if you've got no God, you've got no answer to that question, and society's going to wear themselves out, and basically what it boils down to is the bigger and the stronger will have to make the call. That's all you've got. The only possible standard of moral goodness is God himself. The goodness of goodness originates in God. Why is good good? Because it is God. Like, it is God. <laughs> God is the goodness from which goodness derives. The authority of moral norms flows from God's authority as the cosmic normer. You can make up a norm if you want, but if there is no cosmic normer, then the norm is not a real norm. It's just something in your head, and you can try to impose it on people. That's all you've got. The authority of moral norms flows from the fact that God is the cosmic normer. He is the lawgiver. He is the ultimate standard of goodness. Now, everything I've just said about God, do let's be clear, none of that's true of me. (laughs) obviously. See, your problem is not that you think I'm the lawgiver. Your problem is you think you're the lawgiver. So y'all deal with you. None of what I've just said is true of me. I'm nobody's standard. I'm nobody's final authority. So Ben Miller, a little humility is in order, James says. When I speak morally, and I have to, you cannot be a good person and not speak morally. But when I speak morally, I don't have any inherent authority of my own. Nobody has to bow to Ben Miller, even if I'm right. I can only really gesture toward the authority of another who is God himself. And you know, that alone would just lower the temperature of so many nasty confrontations. There is such a difference between saying, are you hearing what I'm saying? Versus, are we hearing what God is saying? 
Do you hear the temperature difference? There's one lawgiver. And furthermore, there's one judge. One. I am not, thank God, the cosmic enforcer of justice. Even assuming I'm right about what's right. I mean, that's an assumption. Maybe I'm wrong. But even assuming I'm right about what's right, I don't have the power and I don't have the prerogative to force goodness to be or to destroy and crush evil. I don't have the power to do that. and I don't have the prerogative to go out and try to make that happen. At best, what I can do is seek to persuade. I can make the case. I can seek to win hearts and minds, or in some public offices, obviously, there, there are those who play a certain limited restraining role. But, you know, whole regimes, as you know, historically have lost their minds on exactly this point, thinking they have become the lawgiver and the judge. Oliver O'Donovan, in his book, Ways of Judgment, makes a profound, profound comment. He says, a temptation in human judgment at the regime level, he says, a temptation has to be confronted here, the temptation to overlook the distance of human judgment from divine judgment. The practice of punishment has never been in more danger of becoming cruel than when it is most confidently believed to regenerate the offender and renew society. Political order has never been more oppressive than when it was framed with the pretension of bringing about a transformation of the world. There is one lawgiver and judge. This awareness of who God is and who we are not. You know, it's tremendously freeing, because watch in the second phrase of the verse how James expands on God's liberating godness. There is one lawgiver and judge who, who what? Who is able to save and to destroy. And what that is telling us is that in every single situation in which I'm trying to exercise proper human judgment, there is this one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. And what that means is two things. Right now, God is working graciously because he's able to save. And in the end, God will judge perfectly because he's able to destroy. Right now, God is working graciously, and in the end, God will judge perfectly. Think about both of those things. First of all, God is able to save. That means right now, God is working graciously. You know, in in our impatience with the slowness of God's justice, and I get very impatient with it, it is so very easy to miss. What the Bible says very clearly is the reason for that slowness. God is not interested only in justice. He's also interested in mercy and redemption, beloved. God doesn't just operate all the time in the law register. Strict, transactional, quid pro quo. You know, lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. God, that is, a, that is part of God's justice, that law register. God also, being God, operates in a love register. He doesn't just destroy evil according to the strict standards of the law. The soul that sins, it shall die. Boom, that's it. Judgment without mercy. I mean, just drop the nukes on the whole world. He'd be just to do that, you know. Not like any of us could stand and say, you know, God, you're having such a bad day. No, God's being just. That is not how God is, though he could be. He saves and restores cosmic traitors out of infinite grace. That's our God. And what that means is that as God's justice is working in the world, he has just such greater ends in view than any human justice can imagine or accomplish because God's perfect justice can do so much more than just restrain some evils. I mean, human judgment can do some of that, but God can do way more than that. He can do so much more than destroy evils. 
Because what he has done, as you know well, and we need to just think about this again and again, is that God has visited his justice on Jesus Christ, his son, in our place on the cross. He has judged, condemned, and destroyed him in our place and accepted his obedience to all the commands of God's law, accepted that obedience in our place. It's the great swap, the righteousness of this son of God for me, my sin put upon him, and he's crushed in my place. That's what God's justice does. And in doing that, it's saves. It saves us. And so the question, James says, as you're under this one lawgiver and judge who is able to save, is this, am I in my efforts at justice in this world, and I should be exerting myself in just causes, am I prepared to cooperate in that thing God is doing? That God is saving people How might God's grace be at work in this situation that is so full of errors and so full of evils and all the resulting hurts and miseries that come from errors and evils? How is grace working in the sin? Where sin is abounding, that's where God's grace does much more abound. To those who have been wronged, see, this is what, this is, this is what, This is what so many victims need to hear who have been truly wronged. God is able to save. God is able to restore. God is able to heal and mend and beautify. And you know what? It isn't just those who have been wronged who God saves. Don't ask me why. God saves the wrongdoers too. So often it is those who are just... They're just so wicked, you just can't figure out why God doesn't just smash them. For the same reason he didn't smash you. He didn't smash me. Because who can stand in his sight and say, I'm righteous? God saves sinners. He's able to save. And in the end, he will judge perfectly because God is also able to destroy. See, I want to see evil destroyed. But the perfection of all things, the perfection and healing of all things, which includes the eradication of evil, that, dear saints, is God's domain alone. We need to hear that in an age that trades so heavily on the notion of human or maybe now transhuman perfectibility. So many have compared our modern world to this machine that has really moved beyond cultivating God's world, including human life, really has moved beyond cultivating it to trying to control it, to try to make a world that is optimally, optimally efficient and safe and comfortable and attractive and productive and fair and free. We'll make it happen. That's the machine of modern life. Is it any wonder there's so much anxiety in our highly competent age? God's sovereignty to save and in the end to destroy the evils that just rake over our hearts. God's sovereignty to do that. It is his sovereignty alone. It is his prerogative alone to save and to destroy. That allows us to accept our place in his purposes, which are often very messy and very mysterious. I don't understand why God does and doesn't do so many things, but God is able to save and he is able to destroy, and that means I can just find my place in what he is doing in the mess. God tells us to steward, to tend. The old word is husband, 
And that means weeding, yes. It means not just watering, but weeding. It means guarding. It means fighting. It means sometimes actually assailing certain things in the name of our God. That is our place. There's nothing passive about this, but there's a sensitivity to those who know God is the lawgiver and judge. He can save and destroy. There's a sensitivity to just the organic nature of things. We're not in a machine. Everything has a very organic nature, especially human beings. And so you and I can participate in the growth of things. We can participate in the healing and mending of things. We can participate in sometimes the cleansing of things. But you and I never actually create anything. We never actually control anything. We cannot ultimately save. We cannot ultimately destroy. You know, for me, the biggest example of this, probably my own life, has just been the birth and development of my children. I'll be honest, I know, I know what happened that produced four children, but I don't know how it produced a child. I do not know how God does it that this very, very simple human contribution suddenly creates a human life. It is absolutely astonishing. We participate in God's organic world, but God gives the increase. He alone is able to save and to destroy, and that brings freedom, freedom and peace. T.S. Eliot, Ellen Sacassus recently quoted a line from T.S. Eliot in which he wrote how in modern times we quote, listen to this, we constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. We're constantly dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. That's the modern mindset, a better system. We all want to live in a world where people are good to each other, but the only hope for a world made good It's not a machine. It's no effort of man whatsoever. It's God alone. And the question I want to leave you guys with today is this. Who are you? Who are you? And really, what do we have to offer this world if we are playing their game by their rules? As if we in the church, as much as those who do not worship God, are acting like there is no true sovereign lawgiver, no true sovereign judge, no true sovereign savior over us all, then what do we have to offer the world? May God bless these things to our hearts. Amen. Father, we ask you to give us peace and joy in the freedom we can experience under your sovereignty. In Jesus we pray. Amen.